So we've got a reading from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and then further on from verses 22 to 25. So Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And further on, and uh, to Luke chapter 8, verses 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. What is your faith, he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Amen. Good morning. Really good. Let's try that again. Good morning. morning. Just checking your way. Um, It's good to see you. Dave is slightly vertically challenged, but we'll stick with this height and see how we get on. Um, This week, I found a new TV program. Uh, I haven't watched the whole thing, so this is just a clip, but the TV program was called Storm Chasers. Storm Chasers. Storm Chasers seems a crazy premise where these three American guys who are in a, uh, an adapted car that looks more like a tank than a car with armor-plated sides and a turret on the top that contains a TV camera, they travel the American Midwest looking for storms. So their aim is not to drive away from, but to drive towards a storm. Their favorite uh, storm to find is a hurricane. They love typhoons. So there they are. It's a billiard table Midwest, and they see rain coming and a storm, and then they hit the gas, and they go as quick as they can towards the storm. So the clip I saw was um, kind of sweat pouring down the faces of these men. They have crash helmets on inside this armor-plated tank-looking car. They have special seatbelts, something like out of an air fighter, with two things on the front, one thing in the crotch, and they're kind of together so that they're safe and secure. They're sweating profusely underneath their crash helmets in their armor-plated car, going towards the storm. And then the problem, as the editor cuts from one scene to another, is now they can't see where the typhoon is. So the guy in the back who's looking out at the turret is saying, I can't see where the typhoon is. It's a a rain-bound typhoon. Is it there? So they're looking out of each window left and right, all for the sake of entertainment. 
Then they give up. This is all in two minutes, by the way. They give up because they're scared that their car is going to be whisked away by this typhoon. They hit the accelerator and off they go. And there's a big sigh of relief. That's all in the name of entertainment, right? <laughs> These guys need their heads seen to. Because surely, if their car was to get caught up in a typhoon, it would be something like Dorothy, yeah, and the house would be stuck somewhere else, somewhere in the, the far west rather than the Midwest. It is really interesting to me that in the name of entertainment, people would risk their lives heading towards, not away from a storm. Now, the link is clear, isn't it? Here we have in Luke uh, chapter 8, we've only got time to look at one of these true stories. In Luke 8, 22, we have a storm. Now, a storm that is described here in chapter 8, 22 and following, this is not a thing of entertainment, okay? In the ancient world, in the Roman world, and even before that, a storm, a hurricane, well, there was no greater fear in society as a storm. That was a symbol of death and destruction and chaos. This is not something you drove towards in your chariot, not your armor-plated one. You would not drive towards it, you would come away from it. And yet here, in Luke 8, you've got the Lord Jesus who directs the disciples, verse 22, towards the storm. Now that is interesting. Here we have the symbol of chaos and destruction, this typhoon, this hurricane that descends upon the lake, and Jesus says, I want you to go towards that, knowing that it would come. He wants to take them towards a storm. And it also interests me that, that Luke and Matthew... Mark, John, there is so much that Jesus did in his earthly life and ministry. They could record, well, the Bible could be three times, four times, ten times as long, and yet they choose to record some things and not others. Not for our entertainment or our intellectual kind of um, stimulation, but every story, every true story that's recorded in the Gospels from the life of Jesus is there to teach us something. So why is this here? Because we see Jesus in three postures in these verses, verses 22 to 25. You see um, the rebuking Jesus. That's the first kind of posture that we're going to look at. Then you see the sleeping Jesus. And then you see the questioning Jesus. Okay, Three postures that I want us to look at. The, uh, the rebuking Jesus. We see something of his authority and power. We see Jesus asleep, which is intriguing and interesting, something to learn there. And then we also see the, the questioning Jesus. Three postures I want us to look at. Verse 24, the rebuking Jesus. This, uh, this storm kind of wells up, and then with a word of authority and command, it dissipates. What's interesting to me this week is that as I've reread uh, Luke 4 to uh, Luke 8, and then through to Luke 10, is the difference in the miraculous events that Luke records. You know Picasso? Picasso is famous because he has these different periods in his uh, artistic journey, the blue period when he's kind of melancholic and a bit depressed and sad, the red period when he's in love, the cubist period when it all gets a bit weird and hairy. It's as if Luke is recording Jesus' early period of his earthly ministry, chapters 4 and 5. In those chapters, it's all public. In those chapters, he heals a paralytic man in a house that is so jam-packed full, the friends of the paralytic have to go up the stairs, 
make a big hole in the ceiling, and Jesus performs a miracle in front of hundreds of people, probably. He heals literally hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, evil and uh, sick and uh, those in need of a miraculous uh, intervention in Simon's house. And then he also drives out uh, a demon from somebody that's been in bondage for so many years. And it's all there in front of thousands and hundreds of people in Luke chapter 4 and 5. It's public. It's a public demonstration of his power and authority. By the time you get to chapters 8 and 9, everything gets more personal. But you have very similar miracles. Here you've got Jesus, there's just a few of his disciples, verse 22, they're in a boat, there's maybe four or five people. It's far more personal, but Jesus is revealing his power and his authority over nature. Next uh, true account, verses 26 and following, Jesus drives out this demon-possessed person, and he's restored in his right mind. He's got power and authority over nature and, and over evil spirits as well, but it's personal. Just a few disciples see it, and then you have this wonderful Wonderful miracle, verses 40 and following of chapter 8, where Jesus reveals his authority over sickness and death as he brings Jairus' daughter back to life in this wonderful, tender miracle. And it's all there from the public ministry of Jesus, chapters 4 and 5, to the more personal and localized ministry of Jesus. It's as if it's a different artistic period. Why? Because in chapter 6 and 7, Jesus has created the new Israel. He's delivered the law. He's uh, created a new Sabbath. He's saying something new is happening here. And these are the people that are going to do it, chapters 8 and 9. These are my disciples. These are my followers. And do you know why I've got to show them again my authority and power? Because they're on mission, chapter 10, that we're going to look at in a few weeks' time. It's very interesting. And here we have Jesus' authority, verses 24. They're led by Jesus towards the water. A hurricane descends. The uh, water is churning up. The boat is filling up. The faith is decreasing when it should be increasing. And yet Jesus, as he is awoken from his stupor, verse 24 says, Peace be still. The wind ceases. The rain, if it was any, stops. The waves are now flat. All through three powerful words. And Luke, as he records these stories, intended for the church, the disciples, not the world, but for the church that's been created, so to speak, in chapter 6 and 7, now we see an example and a story that's all about faith once again. Peace be still. This, uh, we could understand metaphorically, is a symbol of every struggle, every challenge, every difficulty that we will face, and every difficulty and challenge and struggle we will face as we fulfill the mission of God, which is to take the gospel to the world, including Epsom and Yule. But this rebuking Jesus, verse 24, Jesus is showing his authority over nature, showing that he's the Lord of the storm as he rebukes the, uh, the earthly elements, and they recognize his voice, the very voice that created them in the very beginning. Peace, be still. This very, very brief miracle, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Jesus has authority and power 
not just over an individual, but over the whole of the created order. I thought Dave was going to read it at the beginning. I got nervous, but also thankful. Because this week, I was reminded of Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is an incredible psalm. It's all about God's majesty and power. It's all about his authority and control. And in this psalm, there's a tremendous place where it says, the God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. Here we've got the psalmist imagining a storm. A storm that's like the the outskirts of the authority and power and majesty of God himself. How does he interpret the storm? The God of glory thunders. That's the source of the storm. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord twists oak trees and strips the forest bare. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that Mother Nature does not exist. Every power, every force, every element and atom that interacts to cause a storm is under the authority and power of King Jesus. He is the Lord of the storm. The storm exists because of God's authority and power and control. It is there because he wants it to be there. Every element of power that nature has is only there because God gives it to it. And he's in control. That's why, with the word of authority and power, he can say, peace be still, and nature is restored to normality. It's not a natural occurrence, it's a God occurrence. When God rebukes the storm, it's the very power of nature comes from God, not from itself. Not that you'd hear that in a school. But when Jesus says, peace be still, he's revealing who he is. He's revealing his character. He's revealing his authority. He's revealing his his God-likeness because he is God. I am the king enthroned above the flood. I am the lord of the storm. With a word of authority and power, I could strip forests bare. I could twist oak trees. And I'm this powerful, God says to the disciples, that if you take refuge in me, there is nothing, no storm, that could strike you, that could do you harm. If you take refuge in me, because I'm the Lord of the storm. I'm the Lord of the storm. You're safe in me and only in me. It's the first picture. The rebuking power of Jesus, the Lord of the storm. Here's the second uh, posture of Jesus, verse 23. You've got the rebuking Jesus, verse 23. You've got the sleeping Jesus. The sleeping Jesus. Not only does his miracle tell us and show us that Jesus is uh, Lord of the storm, he's in control, he has authority, but the sleeping Jesus, now listen carefully, the sleeping Jesus teaches us that very often it appears that God takes his time to dissipate the storms that we will face in our lives. Sometimes it will appear that God is being all too slow to make the waves stop to still the wind and to restore calm in our lives. Sometimes, if not often, if not always, King Jesus will let storms come into our lives. He will let, by his purposeful design, let the wind come. He will let the waves mount. He may even let water come into our boat. 
and he can appear from our understanding all too slow to act before he does anything. And what this passage reminds us is what the whole Bible teaches us. That although God may be slow in acting, he is always purposeful. He is always in control. He may appear asleep. He will let the waters rage. He will let the storm continue longer than we would want, but he will not be hurried. He will not be hurried. He was asleep. He has complete power over the storms. He will not act always in a way in our lives that we would choose to. He will not act to the speed that we would like him to. But he is always in control, even if he appears to be asleep. Now, we need to be reminded of this in modern Christianity. Some of us can think, if we become a Christian, then all will be well. Others of us need to be reminded that if we're currently going through a storm in our lives, God is still in control even if he appears to be asleep. He will not be hurried. There's one sentence in the Bible that I think reveals this really clearly, the whole of the message of uh, Luke 8, 22 to 25. I think it could be summarized in John 16, 33. In John 16, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, you'll have difficulty and hardship and suffering, but be of good heart, says Jesus, because I've overcome the world. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. What does he mean by that little phrase, I have overcome the world? Friends, because Jesus went to the cross, because he died for the sins of the world, because he received the punishment of God for my sins and your sins, because God, by his power and for his glory's sake, resurrected his son, it means, it means that whilst there is suffering in this world and whilst it is real and whilst pain and tears are real and will be present until he returns in authority and power, they are only limited. They only have limited power because Jesus overcame. Death is real. Pain is real. It's not the way it's supposed to be and it's not the way it will be. But Jesus in his death and God as he raised his son from the grave has overcome the world. Therefore, you will have tribulation. But take courage. Be of good heart, says an older version because I have overcome the world. Evil, brokenness, pain, suffering, they are real. But Jesus Christ says, I've overcome the world. And if you rest in me, if you trust in me, if you have faith in me, you will be buffeted. You will suffer. But I've overcome the world. And all the suffering that you face in this life are limited but purposeful and real. Some of us need to be reminded that uh, God does let waves come. Perhaps one or two of us, perhaps three or four of us have forgotten that if we're facing suffering and hardship in our life at this point, it can sometimes take us off guard. I didn't sign up for this. I don't want this. I don't like this. This is happening longer than I thought. We should never, ever, ever be surprised by suffering in our lives. It's normal Christian experience. We should expect it. God lets waves come. He lets storms descend in our lives for his purpose and for our good and maturity. God does let boats look like they're going to sink. He lets water be taken on board. He lets winds come. So don't be shocked at storms when they come into your lives. Don't be surprised. 
Don't be cross at God, as it were. It's always part of God's plan through the mission of the church to experience suffering and difficulty. But secondarily, in verse 24, some of us need to be reminded that God will not be hurried. Some of us need to be reminded that suffering comes, that storms come, that difficulties will come. Others of us need to be reminded from verse 24 that God will not be hurried. Master, Master, don't you know that we're going to drown? Don't you know that we're going to drown? Now, there are many differences between football and rugby. One is a decent sport, one's not. You can decide which one it, it is. But it interests me, the managers in football, the coaches in football, they have a technical area, they have a dugout, and they are next to the whitewash, watching overpaid players kick a little ball uh, for lots of entertainment and fun. But they always operate on ground level, and they're looking the players in the eye, they can come over and say a word from the sideline and so on. Rugby, rugby coaches, they take the posture of being higher up. They're up in the stands. And if you watch that wonderful game of rugby that England nearly mucked up yesterday, you would have noticed that in front of the coaches, there are three or four computer screens, aren't there? With video analysis right there. They can replay, they can rewind, they can look at different things, they can plan and scheme and make substitutions. They can see everything that football managers can't. They do that on a Monday morning with their video analysis. When you are high up in the stands, you can see everything clearly. You know how everything interacts and everything interlocks. You can see where things need to change. You can see a purpose that if you're right down at ground level, you cannot see. Friends, let me remind you that God is in the stands. God can see all of human history. God can see your life mapped out. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life to make you more like Jesus through suffering and difficulty and pain. That is how he works. The people that I know who are most mature in Jesus are those that have suffered the most. That's how it works in God's economy. There's another story that I was reminded of this week by Elizabeth Elliot. She uh, once heard the story of a, a, a sheep farmer. It's interesting, she said, that sometimes sheep think that the shepherd is trying to kill them. If sheep are not plunged in uh, insecticide every three months, they will become bloated. They will get uh, zapped by an insect of some description. They will kind of uh, billow up, and they could die very, very easily. So once every three months, Elizabeth Elliot observed, a shepherd would take his crook around the sheep's neck and plunge it head first beneath the insecticide for its good. Now, if a sheep could talk, I'm sure the sheep would say at that point, what on earth are you doing? Are you trying to kill me? When at that time, the very thing the shepherd is trying to do is trying to save it. That is just how God works. God can see everything. He's in control. He can rebuke the storm when it can be stilled, but he will not be hurried because his purposes are far higher than ours. And so when we pray... The wise person always prays in this way. Lord, I'm asking for this thing, whatever it may be, but please give me what I would have asked for if I could see everything you could see. I want this for my life. I want this physical ailment. I want this cancer. I want this relationship to be better. I want this financial struggle to end. I want this to end now, today. 
but Lord, would you help me to have patience to endure because I trust you in the midst of this storm and help me to see and to know what you know because you can see everything. I'm just on the sideline, but you're in the top of the stand and your purposes are higher and greater than mine. Help me to trust you. We've seen the rebuking Jesus who has power over the storms. We've seen the sleeping Jesus who we need to be reminded of is who's in complete authority, whose ways are higher than ours, who can see everything we cannot. And then finally, we can see, verse 25, the questioning Jesus. The questioning Jesus. Verse 25 is absolutely loaded in this one question from Jesus Christ. It teaches us um, that we can trust Jesus and how we are to trust Jesus at the same time. Let's look at it together. Jesus said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? How can you trust Jesus as you face suffering and pain in your life? How can you trust Jesus when your boss is making your life hard, when your spouse looks like they're losing interest in you, as if your children will never come back to the church when they profess faith when they were younger. How can you trust Jesus like that? Verse 25 tells us how. Here's the question, the questioning Jesus. Where is your faith? Jesus does not say, you don't have faith. He does not say, have you lost it? You had it. He says, where is it? Where is your faith? Get it out. You ought to have it here. Don't you remember what I've showed you about myself? Don't you remember the lessons that I taught in synagogue, the miracles that I performed in your presence, the promises that I made and I've kept every single one of them. So where's your faith when the wind and the waves come? Where's your faith? Jesus is teaching us that faith is active. Faith is not like a thermostat, right? You know if you set your thermostat on the seven-day program, even though spring is coming, it might kick in this morning. When your thermostat is set properly, you don't have to go downstairs to set the heating on. It comes on at seven o'clock in the morning and it goes off at nine or whenever it does. Faith is not like that. It is not a click and it just operates every day. Jesus is saying to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I've revealed to you my character. I've shown you my promises. People think, oh, well, if I just had faith, um, it just clicks on like a thermostat. It just happens every single day. It will just come on. Faith is not an impulse. Faith is not a feeling. It's not automatic. It is a deliberate, active choice that you and I make every single day. Will we trust Jesus today? And so Jesus says, verse 25, where's your faith? Why are you not actively choosing to trust me in the midst of this storm that you are facing? It's a deliberate action. You see me raise the dead. You see me um, heal thousands of people and teach you. I've not failed you once. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Faith is a deliberate action. Faith is applying what you've been convinced of today. Just today. And then tomorrow, just tomorrow, one day at a time. 
It's as if Jesus is saying, you, you, you've been shaken in your faith because you've chosen not to remember who I am. You've chosen to forget. You've chosen to forget the lessons that I've taught you. You've chosen to forget the things that you've seen and the promises that I've made and kept. What have they chosen to forget? Well, look at verse 24. Master, we're going to drown. Master, we're going to drown. Do you know what they're doing in this verse at this time when the wind and the waves are howling, when the wind and the waves are crashing in on them, when they feel that their life is at the very uh, end? They're actually doubting Jesus' love for them. Don't you care that we're going to drown? After all that Jesus revealed to them of his character, here are the disciples, here's the the mini uh, embryotic form of the church, and they're doubting Jesus' love for them. Don't you care that we're going to drown? Friends, we have something far greater. We have something far greater, a greater revelation of Jesus' power and authority. We're going to celebrate it in a moment around the Lord's table. Jesus has revealed enough to them so that they should not have even woken him up. They could have trusted him because he's Lord of the storm. But they didn't, so they woke him up. So Jesus rebuked the storm, revealing his power. And then Jesus questioned them. We have something far greater. We have something far greater. The voice of the Lord thunders. The voice of the Lord flashes like lightning, Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. The Bible tells us and reminds us There was a greater storm. There was a far greater storm than the storm these disciples faced. It was the storm outside a city wall. The storm of the Godhead being ripped apart as the Father said to the Son, away from me, away from me. We don't know exactly what Jesus said, but it's away from me. I want you to take, God the Father said to God the Son, the punishment for the sins of the world. I'm going to turn my back on you just for a moment or two, just for a few hours when we've enjoyed eternity together. For this time, you will carry the sins of the world and I'm going to turn my back on you because I can't bear to look on sin. And God's voice thundered from heaven. It was a storm unlike the storm as ever or ever will be. Jesus Christ was one lone man. He was like one lone oak tree from Psalm 29 that was stripped bare for us. He was ripped apart for us. It was a storm unlike we've ever seen before. And friend, a Christian is someone who can say, who gets their faith out and can say, if Jesus Christ stood for me in that storm, then I can stand and I will trust him in any storm. If he stood by me in that storm, if he chose me and adopted me in that storm, then I'll be able to stand and trust him in any storm that he leads me into for my good and growth. He will stood with me then, so he will stay with me in any storm. The most encouraging thing about this uh, little uh, miracle is how Jesus responds. I hear, I think, the uh, current uh, Minister for Education wants to do away with levels. 
and replace letters with numbers. I don't know why. But if there was a prayer grade for the disciples at this point when they came to Jesus and said, Master, Master, we're perishing, it would probably be about an F. And what is so interesting is as the disciples come to Jesus and doubt his love for them, his character towards them, his power, how does Jesus respond? He saves them anyway. That's what's so wonderful about the Lord Jesus in this miracle. They go to him so badly, so uh, doubtfully, so uneloquently, so confused, and yet he saves them anyway. It's just another reminder you're not saved by the quality of your faith. You're not saved by how much faith you have. You are saved by the object of your faith. And these poor weak faith disciples come to Jesus accusing him don't you care and Jesus saves them anyway because of his mercy and grace do you know him doesn't matter how much faith you have doesn't matter if it's little or growing doesn't matter if you're doubting him if there are, you're facing storms I know some of you are in your life do you know him you can come to him confused as you are smaller faith as you are, just call out to him. And just like the disciples, he will answer you. And if you come to him saying, sorry for all I've done in my life, I trust in what Jesus has done at the cross, not only will he hear you, by his mercy and grace he will save you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for everybody here who right now is facing a storm where it appears to one or two of us or lots of us that you've forgotten us, that you're asleep. We know that you have all power, you have all authority, you're a God of grace and mercy, your ways are higher than ours, you're a God of majesty and holiness. Help us please to trust you when it appears that you might be asleep. Forgive me and forgive others, please, if we have begun to doubt you because you are leading us into a storm. But we thank you so much for how this uh, true story ends, that the storm is stilled, that order is restored, that faith is growing because you choose to rebuke the storm, revealing your power. You chose to wake up when you could have stayed asleep. And you choose in your mercy to question. Thank you that you accept people of very small faith so that all the praise and glory might go to you. Please encourage us. Please remind us of your purposes as we come around the table now, I pray. Amen.